Hello and welcome back to Elmtown. This is Kevin Yank and uh, today we are joined by Richard Feldman and Luke Westby to talk about the just released Elm 19. Before we get into that though, let's make some time to acknowledge our sponsors. First of all, Culture Amp, my employer. It's a work day for me as usual and so I have to thank them for letting me stay at home and record this podcast. Culture Amp is based in Melbourne, Australia, and we build a uh, employee feedback platform. And if you'd be interested in joining us on our mission to make the workplaces of the world better places to work, uh, check out cultureamp.com slash jobs. I can almost guarantee you'll get to write some Elm if you come and join us here. And also, we need to thank ElmConf 2018. It is less than a month until that conference. There's, you know, a month and two days as we're recording this, but by the time this, this sound hits your ears, it's about a month until ElmConf 2018 happens in St. Louis, Missouri on September 26th. Check out all the details at elm-conf.us. Tickets are $125. And now that Elm 19 is out, we know there is going to be a lot to talk about. And that will be the place to talk to people about it. Luke, are you excited? Yeah, I help, I help Brian to organize ElmConf. And I was excited until you mentioned that there is less than a month to go. And now I'm just feeling <laughs> super anxious about all the stuff we have left to do. <laughs> Richard and Luke, welcome to the show. It is great to have you here. Let's just all take a moment uh, for a round of applause for the launch of L19. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> yes. Ah, I don't know about you, but it caught me a little by surprise. I knew like it was getting close, but I think uh, all of us assumed it was getting close to some sort of beta release. But uh, I got up in the morning and it was like, yep, it's out. It's done. <laughs> it's happened. Past tense, Elm 19 is a thing. Sure is. How was launch day for you two? <laughs> Wild. Yeah. I mean, I mean, of course, there's a flood of new people in like beginner's channel. There's a flood of people commenting like, hey, I tried this thing. I have this question. Or like, hey, is this different or is that different? There's a lot of linking people, the documentation. Yeah. Just, a a, just a lot of a lots. Fur mm. Furious internet yep. posting. Yeah, absolutely. It, uh, suddenly the Elm Slack is uh, a, a bustling place. Everyone suddenly has questions and and uh, it, it's it's fun to see that sudden surge of activity in the in the community. Yeah, and on, and on Hacker News, I don't know if you knew this, there is a mail client called Elm. <laughs> I don't know if anybody Gosh. is aware of that. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is a tradition, I think going back to probably just every single time Elm's on Hacker News, always, like 100% of the time, someone posts that. It's, it's just... <laughs> How often does that thing get releases, though? I'm pretty sure it's dead, right? I have no idea. I've never used it. Yeah. <laughs> when there's a lot of time between releases like that, you have to question the health of a project like the Elm email client. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I, I groan whenever I see that in comments now, but I'm sure I'm going to miss it when it stops happening. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't I honestly don't know if it will ever stop happening I think like there comes a certain point where people will just see it and realize that it's not there and they'll just post it just to be trolls I mean yeah. <laughs> maybe we'll <laughs> it'll I'm, never I'm die gonna, I'm gonna post it to be a troll <laughs> <laughs> as a longtime editor the thing that bothers me is the people who uh, spell elm in all caps oh, I, yeah. I know it's a small thing I Richard know I have to get that. over it oh yeah <laughs> Definitely. I'm right there with you. 
so for anyone who is new to the show, and I imagine we do have some new people listening to the show, um, would you mind introducing yourselves? Uh, maybe starting with you, Luke. Sure. Um, I'm Luke. I work at No Red Inc. Before that, I I, uh, I built Ellie, the online Elm editor, and uh, I also do a lot of the moderating on the various internet places for Elm. Uh, I also work at No Red Inc. And I, well, I didn't do any Elm stuff before No Red Inc. actually, uh, but now I do a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, so I do a lot of teaching, uh, Elm, Elm in Action, the book for teaching for front-end masters. I do workshops and conferences. I'm reminded of how many projects I maintain now because uh, I have to upgrade them all for 19. Uh, so that's um, Elm Validate, Elm Test, Elm CSS, uh, also the Elm SPA example, which I spent a huge amount of time upgrading. But anyway, a bunch of packages and stuff. And uh, yeah, I, I really like Elm. <laughs> and and not to mention both of you, of course, work on the uh, rather large Elm code base at No Red Ink. And that's what I wanted to make our focus today is uh, for companies like yours, companies like mine, what is the challenge of upgrading to 0.19 look like? What have you learned about it so far? Um, before we dive into that though, I wanted to acknowledge both of you gave really great talks at Elm Europe not too long ago. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. I wanted to just touch on those. Richard, you talked about uh, make da making data structures. Um, yeah. Which I guess, Something maybe you learn in your second week of Elm is that pretty much every time you start something new, it starts by working out at least a, a hypothetical way of modeling your data. Mm -hmm. is, is that where you started in preparing that talk? Uh, honestly, I think it was, it was more observational and just kind of realizing that the way that I'd thought about building UIs had changed since I first got into Elm. So at that point, the... 19 was in alpha and I, I'd been sort of iterating on the SPA example and um, initially I was like oh I'm just going to go through and upgrade it and move on but of course you know whenever you revisit a code base that you haven't touched in a long time and, and for that one it was you know over a year um, you, you notice all these little things you're like oh I do that differently and I do that differently and so I, I just sort of like started refactoring and just it got you know it snowballed um, <laughs> and and eventually I, I realized like wow I I really like have changed uh, how I approach things like this, like projects like this. And, and so I decided to give a talk about that change. I guess the big idea for me um, that I wanted to get across was the idea of focusing on the data model, which is to say like the foundation of the application and iterating on that first before building out the logic on top of it. Mm. Um, that's kind of the big thing that I do differently now that I, I didn't when I started out. And I, I think I didn't realize just how much like when I first got into Elm, um, just how much you could do and how much like getting that really nice uh, can make everything else go so much faster and easier. Yeah, I think every every other technology I've used to build web frontends in the past have, have always led me to start by getting something on the screen. So usually the very first mm -hmm. thing I would write would be a div tag of some sort. Sure. Um, and I would get something on the screen and then attempt to bring it to life. But uh, I do find that uh, with Elm, it does tend to start with, well, what, is, what are the bones of what I'm trying to describe? What are, yeah. the, what are the things that are gonna move and how do they relate to each other? For sure. And Luke, your talk, when and how to use web components, I think uh, 
possibly some shots fired here because before that talk, uh, the canonical talk that I would recommend to people on Web Components in Elm was Richard's. Right. <laughs> was it in need of an update? L Luke's is um, much better. You should watch Luke's <laughs> and not mine. <laughs> high praise. Um, I'm not, I don't think it was in need of an update so much as it just needed uh, restating uh, within the current context. So one of the one of the big and uh, moderately contentious changes that came in, in 0 0.19 is that the native modules loophole has been closed. Mm -hmm. um, we have ports, but there are certainly some things that don't feel supernatural with they don't feel particularly, <laughs> feel particularly natural with ports. Um, yep. In particular, it's uh, not a cult enough. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they can't fly. They, uh, <laughs> I don't know about you. The way I think of it is like ports are good for, for talking to JavaScript at the root of your app, like yeah. at the start of things. But sometimes you you have a need to talk to JavaScript at the other end, at the leaves of your, your views. Yes, and, definitely. Uh, that's where ports are especially uncomfortable. Yeah. Or even more simply, I mean, ports have never been especially good for making DOM nodes. No. Mm. Like they, they mm. can do it, but they're not great at it. And so, Luke, like, uh, w were you actively using web components in any projects before you started preparing that talk, or was it a learning process for you? Uh, yes. I used them pretty aggressively in a rewrite that I did of Ellie's front end, uh, just, just to see if it was a good idea. I kind of, I treat Ellie sometimes as like this uh, laboratory for trying out more out there ideas about how to use Elm effectively. Um, yeah, I suppose it was no coincidence that your your big live coded example in that talk was a, te a text editor wrapped in Elm. Yeah, I don't know if that was as much expertise as it was laziness. Um, not, not, <laughs> not wanting to seek out a, a different example that I didn't already know how to do. Been there. Yeah. <laughs> So yes, both of those talks, uh, mandatory viewing as far as I'm concerned, and you'll find links to them in the show mm -hmm. notes. I do. I wanted to. I do want to share though that we're also using them in production at Noreed Inc. to do a couple of things. Oh, um, what sort of things are you doing with them? We have a, a text editor that grows and shrinks to to fit the size of the the text that uh, a person is typing, and that's not really something that the text area element does based on the HTML spec, so you have to use a little JavaScript to make it happen. And so we, we wrap a text area with a custom element to do that. Mm. And we also have one for doing some drag and drop stuff with the HTML drag and drop API. And we just introduced one to wrap the Quill.js rich text editor. We haven't yet done any at CultureAmp, but we've, we almost did one we have a few cases where we have a, like a div that we want to expand vertically to show its full contents. Mm -hmm. And doing that expand to its natural height has involved some slight hacks in Elm land. And we've always kind of gone, well, these hacks are working, but we're not especially happy with them. And if we had to do this again, we might consider doing this as a web component. Mm -hmm. But uh, we didn't get around to it. And the good news is that stuff's a lot easier to do now in Elm 19. The new viewport uh, APIs provide a really nice way in Pure Elm to ask for heights of things. Yes. Yeah. So interesting note on that. I, I had a conversation with Lee Byron um, uh, a couple of years ago. He, he works at Facebook, or he did? Maybe he doesn't anymore. I'm actually not sure. Um, mm. Haven't talked to him in a while. Uh, certainly at the time he worked at Facebook. Lee, if you're hearing this and you want to correct the record, you know where to, <laughs> you know where to contact me. 
but he made like immutable JS and, and like worked on GraphQL early on. And I, but anyway, I, I was asking him about React Native and how they dealt with that same kind of question of like, let's say you need to do something on iOS or on Android um, that you know React Native doesn't have native support for. How do you like do interop um, mm. at the lowest level? Uh, and and what he said was essentially. When you get down to the lowest level uh, and you need something where you're like, yeah, we don't have an abstraction on top of this. He said, well, we just go down another level of abstraction. We just like write the iOS code or whatever the Android code um, and then like expose some API to that and then just build the React Native on top of that. So basically we define a new primitive. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting analogy for custom elements. Like, like the example Luke gave of the text area. Essentially we're saying the browser offers a text area. It doesn't quite work the way we want. One way we could do this is we could write a bunch of Elm code to, you know, try and do this. Or, or like in 18, we couldn't. In 19, maybe we can with the mm-hmm. viewport API. We haven't really tried yet. Um, but fundamentally, what, we're, what we've done is we've said, this is a new primitive that we want the browser to have. So we wrote it using, you know, the, the language the browser understands directly, which is to say JavaScript. And then we've exposed it through an Elm API. And then we're just treating it as if we've had this primitive all along. And I think that's like a, a little bit of an underrated uh, strategy or, or like maybe mindset overall is to say like, you know, like the thing that we like about Elm is that it makes our applications robust. We don't necessarily care if like the primitives are defined in Elm so long as they're small enough that we can maintain them. I mean, the problems that you have with JavaScript is when you have thousands of lines of code. If you have like, you know, a dozen lines of code to write a new text area that works a little bit differently than the default one, like we're not going to have any maintenance headaches over that. That's just not going to happen. Like there's not going to it's not going to have runtime exceptions, right? It's not going to crash. Right? I mean like well, Luke, Luke does not sound convinced and I have a story well, to tell about that okay, too. Okay, okay. So maybe, maybe but in production have we had them? I mean, I'm I don't doubt it in development, but I may have fixed one yesterday in production. Really? Yeah. Wow. All right. Well, there goes that theory. Um, <laughs> but if there's that small amount of it, you know, in our code base, like that's not that's not a big drain on our resources. Like it would be like we have a quarter million lines of Elm code. As far as I know, that's the biggest Elm code base anyone has. If we had a quarter million lines of JavaScript code, like this would not be like something we'd be laughing about. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's the type of thing where like this would be a constant like source of of like lost productivity and, you know, <laughs> hours and hours and hours spent on this. A lot of the the JavaScript runtime errors that we get at Cultramp are uncovered edge cases. And those those tend to crop up a lot in non-trivial UI widgets. So something sure. like a, a auto-completing dropdown list. We oh, have yeah. bugs around things like if the user backspaces over the search string that they've typed and then with an empty field, they hit backspace again, what how do we handle that event and those kind of things tend to escape the notice of engineers who work on those sort of widgets uh-huh. and we really love that uh, the elm compiler uh forces us to catch and handle all of those unexpected cases yeah i i i do see a benefit to writing widgets in elm whenever you can to get solidity around those little edge cases that said you know, those those kind of bugs are noisy in our error reporting. They don't tend to hurt our users much. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, side note on autocompletes, super underrated how complicated those things are to implement. Oh, yeah. like, tell me about it. <laughs> very, very easy to use, very intuitive, you know, quick to pick up. But, but mm. implementing one, you know, <laughs> buckle up. <laughs> You're in for quite a ride. The day I said, okay, this is almost done. I just need to add keyboard support. <laughs>
So uh, you mentioned Ellie before, Luke. Yeah. And Ellie was, uh, from my experience, pretty instrumental to the pre-release process of Elm 19. Um, you got any stories to tell about how that went? Well, I had to move the whole... I had to put the compiler back on the on the server. I think that's the the, oh, big, wow, the, the really? biggest the biggest story to tell. Yeah, yeah. Um, the the parser in in the compiler now is is something that Evan hand wrote, and it uses some GHC foreign pointer primitives to to make it really fast. Uh, so that means that the compiler won't compile under GHCJS anymore without a ton of work that I didn't want to do. So we can't have the compiler in the browser. So I spent most of the effort putting it back on the server and writing a, a cool Elixir Phoenix application to, to deal with that. Wow. So at what point were you doing that work? That must have been, you know, a couple of months ago now. Yeah, it was um, most of the first half of this year. <laughs> I, I had plenty of notice. Yeah. Yeah. It ended up being harder than I thought it was going to be. I burned out on it a little bit, but um, I wasn't, at least wasn't rushed for time or anything. Yeah, right. Because you were here on a, on the Elmtown podcast previously for a whole episode to talk about that that rebuild of Ellie that brought the the compiler into the browser. Mm -hmm. Was Ellie an Elm eighteen app that was running Elm nineteen compiler inside of it, or was Ellie itself uplifted to Elm nineteen around the same time? I haven't upgraded the actual Ellie code base to to nineteen yet. Yeah, uh, right. So that's so cool that you yeah. know the Elm eighteen <laughs> is running Elm nineteen. Yeah. It's like bootstrapping. It's a, a strange loop, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Very nice. <laughs> okay, so Ellie is one thing, but uh, the quarter million lines of code at No Red Ink uh, is quite another. Um, how far along the path to porting that to Elm 19 would you say you are? I'm just now opening up our pivotal tracker. Yeah, I, well, I planned ahead. I got that open and I got the, oh, the, nice. the paper doc of planning that we had. Nice. I wrote up this whole long thing with a bunch of checkboxes in it that are like, here's all the stuff we're going to have to do differently. Mm. I mean, some of them are pretty like, okay, don't use like custom operators or the bang operator. Luke came up with a pretty cool thing for two string. You want to talk about that? So in Elm 19, the, the global two string that can convert any value to a string... Uh, usually for output to the user, is gone because mm -hmm. it was a source of bugs because people tended to start by using toString to print uh, a primitive like an integer, and then at some point the type of that value would change and toString would be outputting some stringified representation of uh, an Elm value to the user and the compiler didn't catch it. So that feature is gone now. You now need to be explicit about what what type you are converting to a string. Yes. Yeah, there's two reasons for that. Um, one is actually uh, Hardy Jones, shout out to Hardy, uh, pointed out um, a bug that was not a crash, but which was definitely a bug, which um, was caused by the old one, which was uh, we had something where we were saying we had like an on click handler or something. And uh, it had like an anonymous function that did some tiny transformation before it put the value in the message. Um, somehow what was happening was that the, the thing that was actually getting put in the message was a two-stringed function. So mm -hmm. it would actually come through the system as like angle bracket function, yep. um, like that string. Uh, and the reason it wouldn't get detected is because, of course, you, you whatever you pass the two-string, it's going to accept it. It's going to do something mm -hmm. with it. Um, so he said, you know, it would be a lot nicer if there was like a, some way to not have basics.toString and have some like more specific thing. Um, and as it turns out, well, you know, Floats and ints are basically the two things that you want to want to two string. Mm -hmm. The second reason was 0.19's optimized mode 
it does uh, different things with, um, I was going to say union types, but now I'm going to say custom types because that's the new terminology yeah. in the updated guide. Um, and previously I would say union type constructors, but now I'm going to say variants. So <laughs> custom type variants uh, used to be stored as strings in the compiled output. Um, but now in, in many cases, in fact, possibly in all cases, they're stored as uh, numbers because they're smaller and it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. um, right. So previously, two string used to rely on those being strings and in fact, like fairly long strings, i.e. The, the, the actual string that you wrote out in your code. Uh, whereas now they don't. Now they, you know, you don't have access to those unless you want it explicitly. Like you can write a function by hand that will turn the variants into strings, um, but you have to actually explicitly say here's what the strings are. Um, now the reason that's important is uh, it means that if two string, you know, accepts a as an argument, um, and and that were to include custom types, then they would do something different when compiling normally versus compiling with dash dash optimize which could potentially be the source of some pretty bad bugs. Um, so removing that and saying, okay, you can do it with ints and floats and that's it, um, means that you know, in, in optimized mode versus not, you're now gonna get the same thing no matter what and optimized mode is still free to do that optimization. Yeah, very cool. So we were talking about the big plan to port yeah. no red ink. I know at yes. Cultramp, we've got a slightly smaller version of that challenge ahead of us. And about a month ago, uh, I grabbed one of the the alpha versions of L19 and ported the smallest possible slice of of CultureAmp to 19 just to to get my head around all of these changes to the language and how easy or difficult uh, it would be to to change existing code to it. And mostly it was just you know the usual mechanical process of asking the compiler what's wrong, doing <laughs> what the compiler suggested, oh, and yeah. then th it just works. Um, is it just a challenge of doing that at a very large scale and and somehow landing it all at once? Or um, what are you facing at No Red Ink? Yes. Um, so, and there, there's, a, we have, how many applications do we have? There's like more, there's like a hundred-ish. Like how many mains? Yeah. Yeah, we have a lot of mains. I think there's 99 main, like entry point Elm files. Yep. Take one down, pass it around. <laughs> <laughs> pass it, yeah, I wish. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, yeah, you can. It's, a, it's the value of type program. You can pass it to stuff. That's, if you that's want. true. It's first I don't know class, what you do yeah. with it, but. <laughs> <laughs> can't can't two string it. Um, that's true. <laughs> so, yeah, so you have, to, uh, you have to come up with ways to try and like make the most correct changes as quickly as possible. Because uh, running the compiler on everything takes a, a good long time. Mm -hmm. um, so in the case of toString, there were like there's about 750 invocations of that function across our code base. And uh, actually, uh, Richard said I came up with this, but I actually got the idea from him. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, what we did was uh, we wrote this module called uh, string.future, and we implemented to float or from float rather and from int in terms of the regular toString. Then we wrote a script that will fail the build whenever it detects a use of basics toString outside of that module. Um, so there's your like safeguard against it being reintroduced. And then uh, we have another script that will look for every usage of toString and replace it with string.fromint under the assumption that most of the time we're using it to convert integers. Right. So you are making changes to your Elm 18 code base that will continue for now to be compiled with Elm 18, but make that code 
uh, Elm 19 ready. Yes. And then right. putting like guards in place that uh, prevent you from backsliding uh, into <laughs> Elm 18 specific code. Literally the name of the script, backsliding. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. So now all we have to do is uh, run whatever command we have to run to delete every line that says import string.future as string, and then we'll be totally ready. That's a question that we've had is how much of the porting effort happens in Elm 18 land and how much of it is, okay, now I am working on code that will only run in Elm 19, and therefore I can't land it until... I'm ready to go all Elm 19. So first of all, I mean, we're, we're going to be blocked on even trying to run Elm make on 19 until all of our dependencies have upgraded, um, mm -hmm. which I think most, but definitely not all, have upgraded at this point. Uh, we first used Elm on 0 0.15. And so every time there's been a major release of Elm, 15.1, uh, by the way, was when error messages got good. So we actually had Elm before it had good error messages. <laughs> <laughs> but every every time it was uh, a major upgrade, um, a major bump of the language, uh, it was always a matter of how long until the dependencies are upgraded, and then we can upgrade. Yeah. I don't know. This might be the first time that we're not ready, even when our dependencies are ready, just because we have a bunch of stuff to change. I think the most likely bottleneck is going to be the way we used Elm CSS. Um, we made heavy use of the namespace function, uh, which in turn made heavy use of two string on custom type variants, which straight up doesn't work anymore for mm. good reason. Um, mm. But that was a design decision I made with Elm CSS like two and a half years ago, which uh, I don't really feel bad about not foreseeing that someday yeah, we'd have yeah. our compiler <laughs> optimization that would, <laughs> would uh, require not doing that. So one of the things I've been working on is, is basically going through and, and converting where we've had that namespace feature to sort of uh, inline and like deprecate that approach of doing things. So for our new stuff, we do the auto-generated class names, but we have a whole bunch of code that's still using the namespaces. We thought at first, like, well, let's just upgrade everything to use auto-generated class names. Eventually we realized it's just, it's going to take too long if we can't make that be a blocker. I'm the, the project owner for upgrading the code base in our big monolith. The, the no red ink repo. Uh, we we're going about it in like three phases. The phase we're currently in is remove all of the deprecated stuff. Um, we have a we have a bunch of uh, native code. Well, we did. We did. <laughs> we had we had a bunch of native code. Um, we're just waiting for CI to pass on those last couple of pull requests now. Yep. To get rid of it. Um, you know things like two string that uh, were used just pretty extensively, uh, packages that use those things. Um, mm -hmm. So we, we had a package that it would read like the, the cross-site request forgery token that Rails puts in that was yep. whitelisted white for older versions of Elm. And so that's going away. So we came up with a different way to do CSERF protection. Uh, shout outs to Richard for, for that plan. A, a recurring theme of our, our like upgrade prep has been now we do it in a better way, which also yeah. works with 19. <laughs> yeah. Like 19 forced your hand, but you've been wanting to fix this for a while anyway. Mm -hmm. Well, in some cases it was like, it didn't even occur to us that there might be a better way until we didn't have the, the like worse way that we had reached for. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then when that was no longer available, we're like, oh, what else could we do? Oh, there's this better thing we could do. Uh, <laughs> the, the big one that's been taking up my life for the last couple of weeks is uh, we use uh, we use Rollbar for error reporting and we had a, uh -huh. a, na a native module to, uh, to, send, to send things to Rollbar. 
and uh, return return a, a command of of any command lowercase m message. So that mm -hmm. kind of fit in everywhere. Um, and we switched that out for a pure Elm version that uses the HTTP package, and that changed a lot of stuff. So we had to start passing in configuration for rollbar as a as a flag, and we had to uh, give a concrete type for those mess for those commands. Um, so that was a big that involved a lot of kind of architecture thinking as well as just uh, you know refactoring code. Um, yeah, so that's this is uh, this is phase one. We just get rid of the the stuff that's going away. Mm -hmm. uh, phase two is to upgrade all the packages. Um, so Elm CSS kind of overlaps both of these two. Uh, we we also have let's see one two three four five six seven eight packages that No Red Ink maintains. Nine actually uh, we've just already finished one, and so we need to upgrade those to Oda nineteen. And then after that, it's it's time to actually start running the compiler on the code base. Mm -hmm. There's just there's like a, there's only a few things that we can't really do until we start until we install the new core and the new uh, you know the new time package specifically. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and that's phase three. That's phase three. Yeah. And then there's like a phase three and a half, which is uh, you know fix you know, do things on CI like change the versions on CI and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we're just we're trying to defer that last bit as long as possible so we don't have to create this huge omnibus branch that needs to be rebased every 10 minutes. Yeah. Right. And, and of course, it will develop merge complex because we have like 25 people, you know, working on this code base every day. So, <laughs> well, maybe not. I guess 25 people working in the department, not necessarily everybody's working on the front end, but mm -hmm. a lot of people are. So is there anything else that you wanted to drill into on the porting effort? Oh, uh, I thought this was kind of funny. Um, so for a very long time, we had actual zero runtime exceptions in production. Yes. Uh, and then we finally, last year, uh, encountered our, or discovered our first one, I guess I should say. Um, and, uh, and it was basically we had written some code that used debug.crash and thought it would never get called. And sure enough, it got <laughs> called. Um, it was a really weird one, too. It, it was something like we'd enumerated the cases in a dropdown, and then we had... Like if you click on a particular thing in the dropdown, then it should send one of these strings and it should only send one of the strings that are actually in the dropdown because that's mm -hmm. how the browser works, you would think. Mm. Um, and then we you know, get it out of the event and then do a case to see which of those things we got back. And somehow <laughs> at some point <laughs> we got one of them that was not in the dropdown. Mysterious I don't know why. things happened in the browser. Right. Um, it's probably someone's like browser extension. That's usually when something really weird happens in the front end. It's like someone had a browser extension that just like clicks on, sends all events to all elements. Who knows? Yeah, um, yeah. I mentioned last week uh, what our first runtime exception was, and it was a browser ex uh, extension. In our case, it uh, was um, it was an extension that um, you can select some text on the page and then ask it to analyze the reading level um, because we're always trying to lower the reading level in our UIs to make them more accessible. Mm -hmm. And um, this particular Chrome extension took the liberty of deleting or replacing some DOM nodes that Elm had rendered so that when Elm virtual DOM tried to come back and update them, they weren't they didn't exist anymore. And, yeah, and that, good times. that caused Elm to crash. And we had the, the heart-stopping moment of, for the first time, seeing in an error report, the source file had a .elm extension on it. And we were like, wow. <laughs> well, it's good to know that that works, because we weren't even sure that seeing errors <laughs> right, in right. files would even work. We'd never seen one before. But uh, And it is like, 
reassuring slash frustrating when it's like actually this was someone else's code that broke it. Yep, exactly. <laughs> we get errors of people like trying to save our web pages and then open them on their desktop and <laughs> so the the file name is d colon slash um, you know right. the file name on their drive and we just go okay not our problem yeah so i bring that one up because there was actually a discussion at some point of um clearly some functions need to work differently in debug mode versus in optimized mode because they need to have different metadata around. For example, you actually do need to be able to do two string on custom types in order for the debugger to work, like the time travel mm -hmm. debugger. It has to be able to have two string work the way that it did in 18 in order to see the names of the messages come through automatically. Um, so there's, there's actually now a split in some of the kernel code where it will uh, in, in, in the case of debug mode, it'll compile to one thing, but in the case of production mode, it'll compile to a different thing that's more optimized. Mm -hmm. um, and so there was this question um, on the core team of should debug.crash, or as it's now known, debug.todo, which has been renamed to sort of indicate what it's for, um, should that actually be a production thing? Like clearly it can work in production. It's not it's not like you know causing problems with the optimizer the way toString did. Um, should that still be allowed? Um, and so basically the approach was, let's try taking it out and see if anyone encounters something that they can't do anymore without it um, during the alpha period. And it turned out that nobody did. And one of the things we had to do in our code base was go through and eliminate all of them. And uh, this is definitely one of several uh, cases where it turned out, yeah, the result was better. Because basically in a lot of cases, what we were doing is it was like we were decoding flags. And then mm -hmm. if, we could, if we got the wrong flags, crash but it's much better if we if the flag decoding fails to like actually tell rollbar about it and show the user like hey sorry something went wrong oops our bad yep. uh mm -hmm. you know contact support um so that's led to an improved user experience the fact that we were not allowed to take that shortcut i think one more thing that was interesting much earlier on um custom operators were removed and uh we weren't super into those most of the people that work on Elm stuff at Nora Inc. don't have a particular interest in using them, but we mm. did. We did have a pretty pervasive use of uh, what we call the rocket operator, you know, equal sign greater than, and it's yep. a it's an, a synonym for just making a tuple. Oh right, yes. Uh, we use that in a lot of update functions, and uh, that was interesting because while toString could be like a pretty straightforward, just like crude parser that replaces strings, um, it's much more difficult to detect the two sides of a, the two operands of a binary operator. So what we did there is um, I got to write my first uh, quote-unquote production Haskell code, and I I modified Elm format to uh, to to transform all of those uses of, uh, of this racket operator into, oh, cool. into a regular tuple. And that was, that was really interesting. So that was just in a custom version of Elm format you used to make those changes or? Yeah, that... I, I, just, I did it on my, on my yeah. laptop and I ran it and then I committed the changes. Cool. So you needed something that had a reliable AST that you could make that, that yeah. change based on. Yeah. Yeah. Even then it still wasn't perfect because to, to do that particular transformation, the, the parser has to be context sensitive. You need to know the associativity of, of operators to, to get it exactly right. And those are determined by the code. So some of them ended up still being wrong, but it gets right back into that nice, comfortable place of running the compiler and seeing the errors and making the changes. Yeah, we're using one or two uh, packages that, that define their own custom operators to create you know, some sort of API experience. And mm -hmm. um, 
The the one that I'm thinking of is a is, is a string interpolation uh, library that that uses a custom operator to glue bits of interpolated string together. All of those APIs that are are designed around custom operators are going to have to go through that same process of coming up with a new name for that operator and then and then changing the the argument order so that things can be called in a pipeline or something like that instead. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's um, it's it's the painful process of simplifying a language that we value its simplicity. So yeah, for sure. I like I'm I'm definitely looking forward to our post nineteen code base. Even if like right now we're like ah, we have to do stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's exciting. It's exciting again to be post nineteen. The thing that came to mind is just just last week, uh, I, someone on the Elm Slack said, "Hey, I'm trying to set up Elm nineteen on my Mac." Uh, to use in an Elm workshop next week. Can anyone help me? And there's this chorus of people going, oh, you probably, you know, it's not released yet. You probably don't want to be using that for a workshop. And then they would say, uh, yeah, well, Richard Feldman's running the workshop and he told me to install Elm 19. <laughs> and everyone said, oh, okay, uh, as you were. <laughs> so how did that workshop go, Richard? Yeah, it went great. Um, so it was a recording for front end masters. Basically, uh, we I did uh, two back to back workshops. One was a full day of intro to Elm, and the other was for the first time I've ever done this, um, at least recorded. Uh, it was a full day of advanced Elm, and uh, both of them were done on nineteen. Um, and basically, I, I sent everybody the sort of an email explaining like, hey, it's not quite out yet. Um, as it turns out, it was out the next week. Uh, but you know, at the time, it was like, well, it's not out yet. I don't know when it's going to be out, which I didn't at the time. But basically, it was a, a question of like, do I want to do the workshop on 18? And then, because like the, the previous time I did it was on, I think, 17? Like 17 mm. had just come out, actually. Um, and so it was like two years ago. Uh, and, and now I was like, well, I don't really want to like have it be out on 18 and then immediately become obsolete. Um, so I did it on 19. And yeah, uh, it went great. Was there anything that was easier or harder or that you, you enjoyed watching how the students reacted to something new that was in Elm 19? Uh, the hardest thing for me was remembering to say custom type instead of union type. Custom type. Custom type. Yeah. Which I definitely, I like the term better. And I think it was easier for beginners to pick up in particular. Because um, I think like custom type, it's like, oh, when you want a custom type, you use a custom type. Okay. Um, Whereas union, it's like, uh, what, what is it unioning exactly? Uh, the, my favorite thing about that rename is it's one of those renames that doesn't just clarify the thing that has that name, but it clarifies the things that don't have that name as well. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> All the other types that aren't custom types, you go, oh, those are built-in types, I guess. And yeah. suddenly things are clearer. Or an alias of an existing type. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I used, for both of the workshops, actually, I used Elm SPA example as sort of the foundation. So in the advanced workshop, um, all of the code examples and stuff are, are based around that. Uh, and in the beginner workshop, it starts off with basically adding a feature to that, like building up a, a new page from scratch. And then midway through, it kind of transitions into, okay, now you're working on that code base and you're actually debugging stuff and like making fixes and changes to that existing code base. And this is based on, uh, shout out to Michael Glass, our coworker. Um, he, he had a suggestion that he basically said, you know, as a beginner, he thought that Elm was easier to learn diving into a huge code base like ours um, than, than he thought it would have been 
getting you know up and running off of like uh, a new application because he could see the value in it. Like he could understand. He's like, oh, I've worked on big code bases before. I know how hard making changes like this normally is, and I can see right away. Oh, this is like very different than what I'm used to, um, in a good way. And so uh, I wanted to like give people that experience by the end of the workshop. So like one of the exercises I do is I basically just say like, here's the bug. Good luck. And even though, you know, like when they walked into the workshop in the morning, they don't, they didn't know Elm. It's like, here's this 4,000 line of code code base. And they're able to just fix the bug just by following the compiler errors. Amazing. Um, yeah. So uh, the, the difference um, in terms of 19 was previously when I did that workshop, um, you know, it would take like a second or two to compile. Uh, because it was like this 4,000 line of code code base. So whenever I would switch from the the initial like, oh, you're just working on one isolated page in this app to like now you're working on the big thing, there was kind of a noticeable jump in compile times. Um, but now it's just like, nope, just immediate, you know, just compiles basically instantly. Um, so that's, I can't that's believe a we've gotten experience. this far in an episode about Elm 19 and not talked about how much better the compiler performance is. Uh, it's like the one of the one of the banner features of this release. But yeah, great great to hear that it was uh, making a difference in in your workshop. Well, I, I can't wait to see the difference it makes on our two hundred fifty thousand lines. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. All right. Well, I think we can start to to wind down this episode. And something that uh, Murphy used to do on the Elmtown podcast was to close the episode with picks. And I just haven't gotten around to doing picks uh, on my watch. But um, you know, Luke and Richard, uh, practiced veteran guests of the Elmtown podcast, came prepared. Uh, Luke, uh, I know you came especially prepared. You wanted to make sure I I gave you an opportunity to share some picks. So why don't you lead us off? <laughs> Oh, I hope my picks are good now. That it's uh, <laughs> a lot of pressure. Uh, so for for Elm, I want people to read uh, this post on Dev.2 by Robin Heglin Hansen called "Elm 0.19 Brings Better Collections." And it's yeah. just a, a short post summarizing all of the wonderful things that he's done for these data structures. Uh, Absolutely, so. I think that's a, an amazing example of people are often asking how can we contribute to the the Elm platform, and that is like a, a beautiful example of someone going, "Hey, I have some expertise in that. I can make Elm better," and 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 contributing in a really big way. For sure. Um, and then my second pick is Mastodon. It's uh, so I'm uh, outspoken about being against corporate uh, commercial social networking, social media. And Mastodon is a Twitter-like interface that's for you know, human interaction that is designed around promoting that. It doesn't have ads and uh, it's federated. So what is your federated Mastodon URL? So I'm, uh, I'm blurry thoughts at mastodon.technology. And uh, I'm I try also to... RT Feldman on yeah. that. I do not yet have a Mastodon URL, but you've just given me the, uh, give me the prompt to set one up. Yeah, it's great. Um, I've tried it and left a couple of times over the past year. As of now, it's excellent. I love it. <laughs> And then, so that's my like uh, tech pick. And my third pick is the the book Capital in the Twenty First Century by Thomas Piketty. It's a seminal modern work on political economics, and uh, I've been trying to read it. It's it's quite difficult to read if you don't have a background in economics, but it's really illuminating about where some of these things in the state of the world are coming from. One of those uh, one of those books that reveals the inner workings of things, and you see you see the world around you in a whole new light. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good way to describe it. 
<laughs> um, for my pick, I'm going to give you just one, and that is the Sublime Text Package uh, for Elm Language Support. I am the maintainer of that package, and there is a beta version available now that has experimental support for Elm 19. If you are playing around with Elm 19, and you should, and you want an editor that has support for it, um, whether you've used Sublime before or you just, you know, you need your experimental Elm 19 environment, I would encourage you to try that out and send me bug reports. Uh, I, uh, I need help getting that thing really polished for its final release. Uh, and Richard, have you got anything you want the people to look at? Well, let's see. You did one and Luke did three, so I'm going to do two. <laughs> also, I only have two. So uh, first pick is uh, the Frontend Masters workshops that I just alluded to. Um, I'm, I think people on this podcast are more likely to be interested in the advanced one. Um, but I, I really spent an enormous amount of time preparing those. And uh, I, I think uh, hopefully people will really like them. Um, so if you're a Frontend Masters subscriber, those should be going up uh within the month, I guess. Um, I think they said it usually takes them a month to edit between when they uh, get recorded, which was uh, at the, let's see, that was August 15th. And um, so they should be up by September 15th, theoretically. I should talk to Front End Masters about sponsoring the show because um, this is an unpaid plug. We just switched to Front End Masters as our, as our like training environment that's available to all engineers at CultureAmp and we're nice. really happy with it. So very much looking forward to that content landing. Yeah, I, I, I'm a huge fan of Frontend Masters. Just like the way that they, they do things is is really high quality and awesome. Uh, so the second one is is also uh, technology related. And this is a programming language that's not Elm, but which we oh. use in production. Oh. Luke knows what it's going to be. I'm going to edit this out immediately. This is, <laughs> this, is, this is a programming language called, I think it's pronounced Dahl, D-H-A-L-L. Mm. Um, so we have a... Um, a a small service that we've been uh, writing the backends in Haskell. It's like an admin service, frontends in Elm, um, and the configuration is done in Doll. So the purpose of Doll is basically to be a Turing, sorry, not Turing complete uh, configuration language. So it's created by Gabriel Gonzalez, um, who's really into Haskell, and, and the, the syntax and, and a lot of the stuff um, looks a lot like Haskell. Um, but what's cool about it is that it's basically it's like Imagine if your configuration language, instead of being like JSON, um, was just like a fully featured like ML, you know, modules and imports and all this stuff. But it was guaranteed to terminate. Like when you ran your script to to do your you know configuration or whatever, um, hundred percent chance it will terminate uh, and, and won't crash. It can't. Mm. Um, that's that's the really cool guarantee there. Um, and to do this, it, it has things like you, you don't have like unbounded general recursion, which means that there's like a whole bunch of stuff that just gets really wacky, um, and, and like is impossible. Um, but, uh, I, I have not like used it personally cause I'm not working on that project. Um, but I, I've been sort of like keeping sort of a field of like the stuff that people have been talking about in our, you know, work slack and, um, read some of the articles about like, okay, you don't have recursion, but here's how you can model recursive data structures anyway. Um, it's really, really interesting stuff. Uh, it's, it's like kind of mind bending and, and yet useful. Um, it actually genuinely is a really nice configuration language. So that's uh, cool. check it out. It, that reminds me of uh, whenever I hear about real time programming languages, these, these languages that place the constraint on themselves that they can't do anything that uh, won't complete in a known amount of time. And therefore you can, yeah. you can guarantee that the, the amount of time that an algorithm you've written will take to run on a given processor. 
really really right. cool these languages that are designed with these strange constraints you use those for like airplane controls and stuff yeah right? exactly mm -hmm. yeah all right well thank you for the chat you two uh i i, I hope this has been uh, enjoyable for our audience it's certainly been enjoyable for me as as uh, as someone who is leading the charge on an elm 19 porting effort at cultramp it was certainly it felt like help desk hour for me um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm sure it was a fascinating glimpse into what's going on in these larger Elm code bases now that now that we all have Elm 19 in our hands. Woo! Hooray! Woo yeah, thanks again for listening to the Elm Town podcast. So from Kevin, Luke, Richard, bye for now. <laughs>